Hello, everyone. Hope you enjoyed last week's conversation with Jim Bastian when he shared some of the challenges and opportunities the COVID-19 crisis created, particularly in the practice of law. Now, this week, we'll be talking to a dear friend, an individual I met two years ago at a healthcare conference. Her name is Terry Fontenot, and she's the CEO Emeritus at Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge, Louisiana where she served as president and CEO for 23 years. Now these days, Terry serves as a director at numerous state and national healthcare boards. As you'll experience, Terry is a kind and incredibly gracious person. But today she'll be sharing how she faced, as she describes one of the toughest situations in her life, Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. Now during Hurricane Katrina, Terry and her team had to deal with the evacuation of hundreds of people out of the flooded hospitals over a course of a week. Now, Terry will take us inside the mindset of a healthcare leader during times of crisis so we can learn about value-driven leadership, priorities, and recommendations to leaders who are stuck and in the thick of this crisis right now. As always, our co-host, Dr. Scott Lacey, Associate Dean and Professor of Anthropology at Fairfield University is here to make sure our discussion explores the impact on humanity and its necessity to our evolution as humans. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Terry, I'm going to start off with two questions for you to dive into deep with us, if you don't mind. The first is, um, what is a healthcare CEO thinking about right now? Take us inside of the healthcare CEO that uh, maybe could have addressed some of the limitations of standardization sooner, only to find out that they're in the thick of a personalized crisis? Well, that is a a really interesting question. It's got a lot of different facets to it, as you can imagine. My experience in managing a team through a crisis came in 2005 after Katrina uh, caused the levees in New Orleans to break. And and Baton Rouge is about 65 miles down our drive from New Orleans. Women's Hospital as the quaternary level facility in the state for newborns and mothers was responsible for evacuating almost 125 critically ill newborns out of five flooded hospitals over the course of a week. So, and we already had 84 babies in our 84 bed neonatal intensive care unit. So that is the experience that I can relate to here. It was a little bit planned. You know, health systems are required to have, to do drills and to have plans and have emergency command centers and everybody knows kind of what their job is. But the one thing that we can always count on is that we have not planned for every single eventuality. 
And so the assumptions and the plans that you have in place have to be around your mission, your culture, your vision, and your values. So the the day-to-day work is important, and it's going to change every single day. And that is part of what keeps people unstable because you think you have got about, almost got it kind of figured out, or maybe the census starts slowing down, or they've discovered now that you don't have to have all these people on ventilators, or you're comfortable that maybe you will have enough ventilators right now, you're not going to run out. Mm. And then something else punches you in the stomach. Either uh, your staff starts getting sick. There are hundreds and there's thousands, I think, of employees that have now contracted virus, and so they can't work, and you don't even know about the people who are working that don't know that they have it. So for the CEO, I think um, what they're doing is they are trying to be very visible, make sure that, that people on the front line, as well as the support staff, whether it's the administrative staff or the people who are handling supplies or sterilizing the equipment, whatever it may be, that they see the CEO and that the message is clear, that the CEO is able to communicate in a way that's authentic and can customize the message depending on the audience that he's speaking with, whether it's a group of physicians or the board of community or people on, you know, that are in more of the support areas. Mm-hmm. And just and being, being really truthful, being honest with people, but also portraying a sense of hope. One of the things that I get really disillusioned about when I watch the news these days, and I try not to watch it all day, every day, because it can be very depressing, is there are a lot of people that are recovering from this illness that don't end up in the hospitals, that are going home. And the, the thousands of people who are dying is just, it's tragic. It is just tragic. But the other thing is I, don't, I think that it's too early to start trying to debrief about what could have, should have, would have happened. Mm. There's, there'll be plenty of time to place blame and point fingers. I always looked at that, though, more as let's park that for now. Let's figure out what the learning opportunities are from this so that hopefully we'll never have to do this again. But there will always be some kind of disaster that the medical field will be called upon to handle and really be on the front lines up. And if there's some way that we can make it a little bit better next time, be better prepared, then let's not waste this crisis. There is a slogan about a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And it absolutely was the case after Katrina. There were some things that needed to change in New Orleans and South Louisiana, all the way from a terrible public school system to infrastructure improvements that would have taken years for that to happen. But it all got washed away overnight. And as a result, the city now, 15 years later, has come back better and stronger. So take us back to Katrina when that happened. How did you react? What uh, what was deployed? Take us into that moment. Well, for our facility, we were trying to be available to receive patients. And then we got a call that there were, so, and, and the state thought that all the hospitals had been evacuated. You, mm. Even though it was just 15 years ago, there was no such thing as an iPhone. And the cell mm. phone towers were jammed or blown down because of the hurricane. So the communication was really, really bad. And we were trying to just be available. And at some point, the chief of neonatology and I just had kind of had enough of it. And we personally went over to the state command center, which was only about a quarter mile from our hospital. And we said, let us take over the coordination of evacuating and caring for 
the critically ill newborns, the NICU patients, and they said, God bless you. Thank you. So we kind of empowered or tried to empower ourselves, and we took that aspect over because they're trying to evacuate nursing homes, people on rooftops, set up shelters, and a variety of other problems. And so we, we tr- decided we were going to take the initiative rather than being the good soldier and, and relieve that aspect which required a lot of specialized care and equipment. And then for me, it was about building a team that was really clear on what our mission and our vision was. And as awful as that experience was, it was, it was really almost fun, if that's an okay word to use in this environment to watch how the team unites around a common purpose. There was no question about what we were trying to do. And all the way from the highest paid subspecialist physician Mm. to the housekeeper and dietary worker, everybody knew what we were trying to do and people were willing to pitch in. I was serving food behind the cafeteria line. Uh, I was happy to do it because it gave me an opportunity to see all the employees as they would come through with their food to get their food. Uh, we, we, we threw the policies and procedure man, manuals out the window. We mm-hmm. said, we know what we're trying to accomplish here. We want to offer safe care. I told them that they were empowered to make decisions. And as long as they did them based on our values, then they weren't going to make a bad decision. They, it might have been a decision that with more information we would do differently. But again, that was for discussing later. No one was going to get penalized or fired or anything for making a decision that maybe was not consistent with our current policies and procedures, because this is this is a time when standardization really has to go out the window. You've got to give people the opportunity. They're adults, and most of them are highly trained, so they need to be able to use common sense to take care of what what needs to happen without waiting for orders or direction and that sort of thing. As a CEO, as a CEO, I would tell them that my job was to provide the resources and remove the obstacles. You tell me what you need and tell me what's getting in the way of you being able to do your work. That is my job. I am a support worker in this particular situation. You know, Terry, it's incredible how clearly and concisely you articulated that. I mean, I've got to believe that that experience stayed with you for years, didn't it? It's to, I mean, I'm talking about it right now, and I have goosebumps. And that I was 15, believe that. It's 15 years ago. It was such an emotional experience, but it, it truly is the most gratifying, the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my career, almost in my life. Of course, my family comes first, but it, it was because, and maybe it's because we were so successful at what we did. And we're going to be successful in this pandemic. We've already reduced the expected number of live lo- lives lost from 250,000 to 68,000. So it's working. And, you know, but, it's, but I, I get very frustrated when I just hear all the news is just, it's just banging on you so hard. It's just bad, bad, bad. Even when it's starting to get better, then people want to start taking pot shots at, at decision makers. And, it would be so wonderful if we really could have a bipartisan, and I'm not just talking politics, I'm talking about everybody, to come together and let's, focus, let's decide what the priorities are and let's focus on those, and then we can start fanning out from there. You know, Terry, let, let me 
Well, I want to address a, a few things. I want to go back to, to culture in a moment, but I want to address what you just said. Um, you know, maybe when you first read or heard these words that I'm about to share with you, uh, it resonated. But I'm going to say them again now and give you some context. Uh, standard personalization spooks standardization. And when threatened, standardization fights back hard. Mm-hmm. See, that's what's actually happening. Is it when people have to go on the defensive, they're holding on to whatever it is that they're comfortable with and they know. And we are living at a time right now where the individual, much like you did during Katrina, you allowed them to do what was right based upon the vision and mission and values of the organization. See, people that become defensive like that are thinking about holding on to whatever power or influence they might have. And that's unfortunate because at a time where we're all coming together, uh, we still have a negative air and negative narrative um, around what are what people's agendas are rather than the greater purpose of how we all play a role to be part of the solution Mm -hmm. and and so i'm just sharing i'm not saying you have to agree with this but i'm getting at is it what's happening is that standardization has lost the battle and it's not that it's not important it'll never be unimportant standards are very important but what is clear and one thing i want to ask you about going back to katrina I'm sure that there were standards and protocols in place uh, prior to Katrina. And you just said it. You said, well, during crisis in Katrina, we had to you know, relax those standards. We had to move away from standardization and put, and, and put the responsibility in the hands of the individuals. Were there certain parts of the standards that, that were part of women's health that evolved because of what you learned from those on the front lines, from those that you had empowered to make decisions? Well, yeah, as far as HIPAA had not been in place very long at that point. And we were bringing newborns from five hospitals in New Orleans, and we didn't know where their parents were, and their parents didn't know that those babies had left the hospitals because most of them had to evacuate, but they weren't able to stay in hospital. So we we had to just completely ignore HIPAA because we needed to match these babies with their families. And so we were doing press conferences two or three times a day. We had national press in the hospital. We had international press in the hospital. And we would feature different babies so that we could, because we didn't know how to get, this was for electronic health records. I mean, it it was only 15 years ago, but the world was so different then. And as a result, we just, we said to hell with HIPAA. And that's, that, those words were our compliance officers. We said, we're just not going to worry about that. Now, three or four days after that, the federal government decided that they were going to relax HIPAA. But <laughs> we had already done it. We decided we're just going to take a chance because it was the right thing to do. Now, uh, I think the government has learned from that. They've already greatly relaxed the HIPAA guidelines to this yep. pandemic. And because it just doesn't make sense in a time of a crisis. One of, one of the other things that I had to do was I was credentialing physicians 
to have privileges on our at our hospital because we needed extra help because all these people were evacuating from New Orleans to Baton Rouge. They have a lot of family there. It was the first, it was first large city. So they, all the hotel people were living in their cars. It was, it was crazy. And so the, we needed more help with the, and physicians from New Orleans were willing to help, but they weren't on our staff and they have to be credentialed. And that is typically a three month process and it's very hardwired and there are no exceptions. And, but there is an emergency privilege exception that in our hospital bylaws. And so I was credentially, I was giving people temporary <clears throat> privileges on our medical staff on the basis of them having a badge from a hospital that proved that they were on some hospital staff. So I, so I knew that they were a doctor, but we weren't waiting to check residency programs and DEA, um, license, you know, numbers and all that sort of thing. And so those were the sorts of things that we just had to throw all of that completely out the window. And it all worked out. There wasn't one thing that ended up being unsafe or, or inappropriate as a result, because again, people really wanted to help. And so when I look back on it, those are the things that I remember. There's a lot of really sad stories, a lot of sad stories. So many people's lives were up in it just like they are right now. We hear about the people who are um, suffering with this virus and how painful it is, and they have to die alone, and it's horrible. But I worry about the people who are losing their jobs, and they were already living paycheck to paycheck, and people who are suffering with addiction and people who can't get an elective surgery when it's really not elective, it's they are in, they are really in pain and they need to have the surgery and, and people with behavioral health problems and people that are stuck in jails and they can't get away from other people. There's this, the, the toll is going to be so, so much greater than just counting the people who are dying in hospitals and nursing homes. It's, it's, it's just, it's so unfathomable to me that I don't think any of us could ever dream this stuff. I, I don't watch horror movies. I've heard there's a couple of horror movies that are similar to this. Contagion is one of them. Yeah. But I can't imagine that it's anywhere close to what this really is going to end up looking like. Scott, did you want to jump in? Wow, there's so many things I want to jump in on here. <laughs> um, well, maybe the, the current thing that I keep thinking about is, you know, and thinking about your leadership immediately post Katrina and actually during the, the immediate after effects of the, the, the storm itself. Um, I'm inspired by your approach towards leadership, which is quite different from what I think most folks that are looking to join leadership ranks are taught and, and encouraged to do. And that is that you, you refrain from directional leadership, do this, don't do that, do this. And you focused everyone on, values, essentially mission, but values, right? We can't predict this anymore, but we've got this new terrain that nobody can really understand what to do or how to do it correctly. So when we don't have that, that operational playbook in place, what do we do? We go back to our values, that which brought us here in the first place. And so my question to you is, as somebody with what, especially at the time and even now right in this day, who has a rather unconventional style of truly effective and inspirational leadership. I'm curious, I can see how people that work with you 
<laughs> and and when I say with you, I mean everybody from the people with the brooms to the people that are doing CPR and everything else, right? Um, I can see how those people will embrace this kind of leadership. This is the leadership that I yearn for and that I oftentimes get in some of the organizations I work with. It's people that are value-driven as opposed to giving directions-driven. How does this approach to leadership and your experience both before and after Katrina, how does that approach towards leadership actually, what do people, like I'm talking about your peers, your professional peers, I'm talking about finance department, I'm talking about you know, the standards people, all of these others that are working with you on this process or part of this process that might not be so open to this kind of uh, value-laden leadership, what, what kind of reactions did you get um, in terms of using this leadership style? Uh, well, I, it, it worked for us in the situation and in the moment, and I think it goes back to culture. Women's okay. has a very, very deep culture. We have long-term employees. We have very low turnover. I've said it's a blessing and a curse. Because when you're trying to make some changes, it takes extra time because yeah. people get a little bit entrenched in the status quo. But on the other hand, in times of a crisis like this was and what I'm sure they're going through today, then it, it really helps uh, bring everybody together in, in a way where people share responsibility. I, I, I have no problems telling people that I don't know. Yeah. And I rarely think I'm the smartest person in the room. And I absolutely know without question that decisions are better whenever if they're collective. So when, when I was CEO, I made very, very few decisions on my own. If they were, if, if the outcome was going to be something unpleasant or it was bad news that we had to share, I wanted to be front in the front line and I wanted to be doing it. And when things went really, really well, I was one of many people who contributed to the success and we all needed to celebrate equally. And so that's the way I always, always looked at it. I, I've never wanted people to think that I thought that I knew more than they did. I, I never, I rarely felt like I knew more than they did. Now I have a finance background and I don't have a clinical background, but I listened and I read a lot and I tried to understand but, you know, when, when you approach people who do have those strengths or those, that knowledge, and you come from the standpoint of a thirsty learner, mm. then they are, I always found they were really happy to share their knowledge with you so that you could learn. So I never, I never really had a, a problem like that. So it's a little hard to answer your question because okay. I, I, didn't, I didn't have those experiences, not at Woman's. And now I'm on a, uh, some boards. And the, the, it's real interesting to see the different leadership styles and the, the dynamics of their organizations when you've got people who are, are very team-oriented and servant leaders versus those who are a little more directive or authoritative. I am happy to say that of the national boards I'm on right now, I can't think of one of them that doesn't have a CEO that doesn't lead the way I tried to lead. So maybe that's why it's ended up being a good fit for me because the culture and the leadership styles are consistent with what I believe is most effective. Wow, that's brilliant. So, so Terry, let me, um, let, let's go to where we're at today. Uh, public health, 
is in the national international spotlight right now. Um, I've got to believe that right now the chaos that's going on, the moving parts, just like you experienced in Katrina, though it seemed like in your case, you had prepared yourself for that moment. I realize that this is a different type of a crisis, but for someone that, that's listening and watching this right now, um, what was it that you did to best prepare your organization for the crisis with the magnitude of Katrina? I mean, I want to go back to culture because I, I, while I respect the fact that you've mentioned it and it's the values and mission, go deeper. I've, I've got to believe, uh, just so people recognize uh, that culture isn't just based on tenure, it's based on a set of values and mentality on and the commitment that its senior leaders are making to ensure that there is essentially a, a community-minded set of people who are in lockstep in understanding how we should behave, uh, when we should be behaving a certain t uh, in, in a certain moment, uh, when in this case a crisis calls uh, called for it. What did you do to build that culture? And I'm saying this respectfully. I get that it's been a culture that was built over time, but I've got to believe that when you reflected after Katrina and you thought about the strength of the culture, there was probably some decisions that you made regarding the culture that you're pretty proud that you made that maybe other leaders and other organizations decided that it was best not to make those decisions. Any reactions to that, Terry? Well, you know, culture is magical. And Women's has been blessed and recognized for its culture for quite a while. And often we would have, I would have peers ask me, what are you doing? How do and I couldn't really tell them what we did specifically. There, there's not just one certain thing. It's, it's a set of intangibles, I think, that. <laughs> And it starts with recruiting and hiring people that that you that you know are going to align well and be a good fit with your culture. Uh, I want to back up to something that you said. You said that we had prepared for Katrina. We we did not. We had never prepared for a levee break breaking and a city filling up with water like a soup bowl. We had, we ne that was the difference. But but we had. We've been through several hurricanes. By the way, there was another hurricane that came three weeks later on the mm -hmm. southwestern coast of Louisiana. So some of those babies that we had sent to other parts of the state ended up coming back to us because that storm was really, really powerful, too. And it displaced a whole nother part of the state. So it just seemed like once we about had our sea legs, then we'd get whammied again with another wave. So and I'm sure that's the way people feel right now. And, you know, they're talking about the surge once some of these uh, very radical steps are, are relaxed. But I guess for us, the main thing is being calm and not being afraid, just having the courage. And, and I like to define courage as is not, it's not, the definition to me is not being afraid. 
It is being able to push through the fear to get something done. And that's what you really, I think, have to have in these situations. But I haven't really talked much about trust. And I think that is a huge component of this. So if you've done the drills, you know what the policies and procedures call for, you know the people's roles at the command center, you've had some experience in different types of disasters, you know how people are going to perform and you trust each other, then that just, that's really, I won't say that's all you need, but that is the majority of what you need to be able to work through whatever gets thrown up on the wall at you next. But if you get in these rooms and you start having infighting or there's someone that's trying to be um, more powerful or take charge or whatever, and the others don't want that, mm. then to me, that's when you start having real problems. And we never had a problem with that. We never did. One of the problems that I did have mm. is that we were up, we were sleeping in the hospital. The executive team was. Wow. And, and after two or three days, then we all didn't need to be there. I mean, there were eight or 10 of us that wanted to be there all day, every day. And we were exhausted and we all didn't need to be there. And to try to get someone to go home was nearly impossible. Wow. So we did learn from that, that in, in the, and I, I don't know if it, cause again, that was a very different era. Yeah. That's when it wasn't cool to not be there and not show your support. Now, today we know if you come to work and you've got, you think you have the flu or you're sick, then that's a terrible thing. But I can remember in my career, you just pushed through it and you were expected to be there. And now, you know, it, that was one of the problems that we had is trying to get people to take care of themselves mm -hmm. and so that they could be more good to the organization. Cause you can, you can get exhausted emotionally, physically, and mentally. And, and then if you're, if you're not on, in your a game, then your staff will know it and you're no good to anybody. And they really need to be you, you to be there, be present and being the best that you can be. And so you, you have to, you really have to learn to, to, it's okay to take care of yourself. And we didn't do that. Oh. So, so Terry, you know, Scott talks a lot about uh, uh, being in a state of disorientation uh, where leaders, uh, and what do I mean by this? And I'm just paraphrasing uh, some of Scott's thoughts, and I'm going to ask him to elaborate on it and then ask you to, to comment. That uh, disorientation comes when leaders can't lean on the old standards that gave them comfort uh, in the past. I, I think it's fair to say that uh, a lot of leaders uh, and just people in general are in this magnified state of disorientation. Um, Scott, can you elaborate on that? Because the, what, I'd, what I'd like for you to, to react to is not just what Scott says, but in the context of healthcare, a, a highly standardized industry that is now being forced in the moment to lead in the age of personal is in to, to lead in a more personalized way. Um, Scott, can you elaborate again on disorientation? Sure. Um, and I'll try to keep it at the meta so that then we can kind of get to the big picture so we can hear how that uh, translates into the, the health uh, healthcare sector and leadership. Um, the first thing I'd like to say about disorientation is that it's our natural state because that's how we're born. 
talk about disoriented. <laughs> Think of a newborn, right? Whereas we talk about all these beautiful babies from, from that, that made it through with the, the help of Baton Rouge. Um, that is disorientation. You don't even know what to do or how to do it. You just know to just look at that face and look in those eyes and try to get them to feed you and take care of you, right? That's the best you got. And you might not even have that. So it's our natural state. Um, so we shouldn't be afraid of it because at the moment that we were probably the weakest in our life, that first moment of breathing outside of the womb, it worked out and maybe not perfectly. And I know that some people have better lives than others in terms of suffering, but the fact that we're breathing today meant that it worked out. Uh, we found a way forward in the disorientation. As a matter of fact, I don't think that that's ever left us, but we have the illusion of being oriented by having these standards that, that everything appears to be normal, it's working as it's supposed to. So for me, what's exciting about the state of disorientation is it's a return to normal, the real normal. And second, as you talk about, it provides a moment where, and this is outside of the healthcare realm, just in all realms, where literally we're not, the only thing we're expected to do is innovate. Do it differently. But how do we do that? We revert back to values. And that first value that we were born with in our disoriented state was love. Because whether we knew what it meant or not, we just knew to go like this to the baby and the baby knew to go like this to you because what we needed before we even needed milk was an embrace, was contact and connection with the human being. And so I love your approach towards leadership and I love how you play it and you describe it as something that's just so natural and that everybody's doing it, but they're not. <laughs> and so I would love to hear how, um, from your perspective, in terms of disorientation, how, how do you and how does the, cult, the cultures that you've helped to, to develop in the healthcare sector, not just in one spot, but in many spots and now on boards, how do you help foster a culture where disorientation is actually a land of freedom as opposed to a land of complete and utter despair? Well, I love your description, and I think it, the analogy is very, very interesting. I never really thought of it that way. Um, but I think of it more as transformation and being adaptive. And I thrive on change. I love change. I, I get bored pretty quickly with doing the same things every other day. That's why I'm not real happy about being at home because it, yeah. it, it's starting to get boring. It was okay for the first couple of weeks. I had a lot of things that I need to get done at home. And so I got off the road and that's been nice. But, um, you know, I, I think that it's an opportunity to experiment in a safe place. As long as you're not making healthcare worse, you know, putting people at risk unnecessarily, that's what I see the physicians doing right now. They've decided it's better to leave some of these people off of ventilators and just use the oxygen okay. in a different way. They're, because once you put somebody on a ventilator, the likelihood that they're going to never come off of it is, I've heard, 80%. Wow. So, so it's been so interesting to hear the medical professionals talk right now. The lengths of stay of people in hospitals that have COVID have shortened. Wow. They're sending people home sicker, but at least it's, safe, it's really safe for them to be at home than it is in a hospital. Yeah. So the hospitals have emerged more as ICUs. And they're taking, they're not putting people on ventilators and they're taking them off more quickly. And they're learning to take care of these patients, not through these 
extended clinical trials that take years and years. They're already experimenting with some drugs that are already out there that are off-label use. That would have never happened had this crisis not been before us. We don't have the luxury of time to figure all of this out. And if someone's life is about to be extinguished anyway, and they want to try one of these orphan drugs, then let's let them try it. So I think it's been so interesting because it's it's like change on steroids. Yeah. There are things that people are doing that they're experimenting with. They are change, making complete 180-degree changes in the way they think. Look at masks. Okay. A week ago, we were told you don't need to wear a mask. Now they're saying everybody needs to wear a mask. And that's okay. What I don't like hearing is people questioning, well, why did you say we didn't need a mask a week ago? Now you say, let's not do that. We don't have time for that. We're all learning. That's what medicine is. That's what life is about, is learning and experimentation. And in many ways, this crisis has provided a, a laboratory for experimentation, not just in the medical field, but in all business sectors such that we've never experienced before. Hopefully we won't have to experience again, but let's also hope that we learn a lot from this and that we're able to make some transformational changes as a result of it sooner than we would have been able to do otherwise. I see these uh, photos of like cities, New Delhi, India, and it's the first time they've seen a clear day in decades. Mm. And you hear these scientists talk about they can feel the Earth's movement now because yeah. people aren't moving around. Mm. And it's, it's incredible to me to think about some of the silver linings in this. And I don't want to sound like an optimist because I know we are far from, this is far from over and there's going to be more people die. And I know some people that have died and it's just heartbreaking. I'm sorry. But let's take advantage of this and try to be a, a better community, a better world as a result of it, and not waste this crisis. So, so Terry, uh, this seems to be a, uh, during these uh, conversations that we've had, uh, and you said it, this whole notion of the luxury of time. As a leader, um, how has this crisis changed your perception? about time what why am i asking as i said earlier we've been going through transformation mode we've been in transformation mode for a while and what this crisis has done has accelerated certain things that maybe we wouldn't have had the sense of urgency to do for the obvious reasons but why is it that time seems to always get in our way when technically it's never been in our way? Well, I think primarily it's because it's a matter of priority. Okay. Right now, it's really clear to this country and countries around the world what the priority is. And we're all sharing in this crisis. So it's not limited for the most part to one country or one state or one city. And so to me, it's, it gets back to that commonality of purpose and the ability for people to coalesce to align with a common enemy and being able to figure out how to, to, to fight that enemy off. And as a result, I, I 
pray that we are going to be able to accelerate a lot of things after this. I can tell you in the medical side, it has just been breathtaking to see the number of regulations and uh, requirements and reporting and all these things that CMS and a lot of state agencies require of hospitals and health systems that have never really seemed to been value added. I talked about the credentialing process. Right now, there are nurses cannot work across state lines in most states, and all that has gone away. Now, physicians can walk across state lines, and nurses can work across state lines, and other medical professionals, rather than every state having their own requirements, and you have to apply for a license. That doesn't that doesn't exist right now, and no. so I'm hopeful that when this is over with, that people will decide maybe we don't need to go back to that because. There are, there are other ways to manage whatever they're worried about, but a lot of this has to do with um, history, patriarchies, people's desire to hold on to things that really in this environment, in this day and age, just don't make sense anymore. But, but Terry, isn't the enemy, and again, respectfully, you know, just listening to listening to you yeah we've said that the enemy is the virus but i think maybe we're learning that the enemy's been standardization yeah so you talked about time and why you know why time time is the same right now as it's always been i'm probably not the right person to ask that question because i'm i'm an impatient person <laughs> i've always been that way i never have under my staff used to tease me because you know, we decide what we were gonna do and they knew the very next question was gonna be, when are we gonna have it done? And yeah. then I started negotiating with them on why is it gonna take that long? Yeah. And it's because they had other priorities that they needed to take care of, but what they were working on on my team was a high priority for me. And so I, I would have to learn to try to be a little more patient, but on this particular, on, on this pandemic, we don't have time to be patient and fool with some of those bureaucracies and rules and things like that because people's lives are at stake. So, you know, it's an interesting question. Like I said, I'm probably not the right person to answer because just by my nature, I don't, I don't like to take extra time. No, no, but, but Terry, first of all, you're answering it perfectly. And, and, I, and what I mean is you have a sense of urgency. Yeah. yeah. I do. I'll okay. About yeah. And I think that's part of one of the things that why you and I get along so well. It's what's next? What are we going to do? I think what has probably surprised you is that from one little interview that we had two years ago, look at everything that's happened. Yeah. Right. It's because we, you have sense of urgency in, 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 you know, where you want to go with something and you get there and you won't stop until you get there and you're satisfied. My whole point is, and I'm not trying to spin this. I'm just, you've opened my eyes. I didn't think about it this way. Standardization has been the enemy. I mean, haven't you thought of, I mean, haven't we all thought and considered that maybe people have been dying inside for years because their own points of view, their own unique needs, were never attended to because everybody had to attend to the standardization model of being prescriptive and uh, defining who we should be. I can tell you flat out for 14 years in the work that I've done, 
people have lost their identity and been, and been dying inside. I know we're talking about a different type of death and I'm not being disrespectful, but you're making me realize even more so that our inability to have urgency in evolving standards, in evolving things that may have been good during a moment, but were bad as the world around us evolved, was the enemy. Scott, do you want to jump on that? I mean, it, it, boils, it goes right back down to Tim's leadership style. And, and, and ultimately, I don't know if you've noticed, but when she's talking about I, the direction she's going, right, Terry? You say, I'm going to this direction. I'm going to get there. I'm going to do that. We want this. How, can, how soon can we get there? You weren't talking in econometrics. You weren't talking about bottom lines. You were talking about uh, sort of the finance sector. You were literally talking, you went back to what you, pra you you're practicing what you preach. You went back to the original value statement, which was values. And that you're not trying to get yourself and your team, it appears to me that you're not trying to get you and your team and those that are affected by the team to a specific place in terms of the longevity of the institution or the, the, the self-sustainability of the institution economically. You're assuming that that stuff is gonna happen Right. If you focus on the value proposition that got you to the game in the first place. And I admire that so much. Uh, uh, I, I, I just, I would ask you again to maybe kind of go back to that original question. And I'm just curious, I just, not, somebody not being in healthcare and somebody not being in the corporate sector, I would imagine that this approach towards high level leadership would be met with all kinds of obstacles and, and, and pushback from those forces that actually have a lot of control over where the future of our economy and our corporations and our mutual collective lives um, work themselves out. Well, you know, healthcare is a team sport. You can't do it by yourself. No part of it, you can't take care of a patient, you can't lead an organization, you can't do any of that without working with a team that you trust and that you respect and it's mutual. And so I guess and the board that I had at, when I was at Woman's, they were, they were very supportive. It was a not-for-profit organization. It wasn't a large board. There were only 12 members. So, and they were very effective. And they came from all walks of life. We had physicians. We had business people. We had, we had the person that runs the Louisiana Lottery on the board. You know, we had a lot of, we had a lot of diversity. And but it's a community hospital and they knew about the reputation and, and the expectations of that organization and they wanted to give. So I, I, I'm having a hard time answering your question because I didn't experience what, you are, what, you, what you're asking me about. Now, I do think that in other economic sectors that there probably is a lot more uh, authoritative leadership styles, maybe in manufacturing, maybe it's required, uh, but in health, Every patient that comes in the door is an, an example of personalization. So, you know, there, there, there are standards around the way we're going to treat certain types of illness, and there are standards about how a patient gets admitted and the information we collect and the way it gets submitted and, and that sort of thing. But as far as at the bedside, every patient is exactly different. That's frankly why health systems have such a hard time telling people what it's going to cost them whenever they come in the hospital. Okay. Because every, every, a, a, 
an uncomplicated delivery, hmm. 95% of the patients are going to have a vaginal delivery and the baby's going to be born healthy and they're going to go home, but there's still going to be some, something different probably, possibly about every patient. And so, you know, if there, if you, if you just don't have a price list for admissions, like most organs, like people who make widgets can say it's going to cost this and it's going to yeah. cost shit because it is such a personalized, it's a personal and personalized business. Wow. So there probably are some, I suspect that in some of the really large health systems, because over the past decade, there have been a lot of hospitals that have merged, consolidated. There are some national mm-hmm. systems that are very big yeah. and very complex. And probably those CEOs who are not working directly in hospitals take more of a maybe a, a, an authoritative or a business view. But I also, I know most of them, and I know that they, they grew up in the field and they do respect and appreciate the views and perspectives of the people around them. If they have people that are advising them that they don't trust or they don't think have the knowledge and they are not a good fit for the organization, then they're not going to keep those people on the team. And I don't think that's really that different from any kind of business. Yeah. I, I would never want someone on my team that I couldn't trust. Sure. You, you know what, Terry, I, I and Scott, to, to, just to bridge a, a, this point <laughs> is that in healthcare it's such a mission driven um industry uh that's fueled with compassion and one that is r- really rallies around the patient and uh let me put that in corporate america terms if we were to take that mindset in any large fortune 100 it would be the mission is to take care of our customers as if they were our family that we will take care of our employees as if we are related to them um doesn't happen in those industries it's what they say though right glenn i mean i hear that all the time but it's not what's done i just want to ask you that no well they're you know they're so particularly the publicly traded ones they are so beholding to shareholders and analysts they can't, it's hard for them to even have a long-term view. They've got to worry exactly. about what they're reporting out the next quarter. Exactly. And they have to talk a lot about financial performance. And of course we did that. That's another thing we did at one is a lot of organizations don't do. Every employee in the place knew how we were doing financially. I didn't see any reason not to share that with them. We were doing well. We shared, uh, we had a very attractive game sharing program for them. And when we weren't doing well, we told them, this is what we need you to do to help us through this. So, um, you know, I think we, we tried to do it more like a, maybe a cooperative or a membership organization mm-hmm. rather than, than, uh, it certainly wasn't a prop. Now, what I also would say, cause again, my background's finance, we're not for profit, but we're not for loss either. <laughs> and I would also say, and I learned that my, my mentor was a nun. My first health hospital position was the CFO in a Catholic hospital. Mm-hmm. And you know, we'd say um, no mission, no money. If you follow your mission and you are pure and, pure and authentic about it and you're doing it for the right reasons, I don't know of a, a hospital or health system in the country that would fail as a result of that unless something catastrophic can happen, like a tornado blew it off its foundation. Wow. 
So, so Terry, let's, let's talk about solutions. Um, what do you see as some, you know, again, reflecting back on uh, your career and the crises that you have led or, and or even been a part of, uh, what, what are some, uh, can you share maybe two or three sound bites of, you know, what you would recommend to a leader who's in the thick of this crisis right now? Well, first of all, I'd say be very visible. It's impossible to over-communicate. Have two or three points that you want to make and reinforce them over and over and over again. Be honest. Let people see your fear if you have it. Of course, the, try to stay calm. I'm not saying be fearless, but try to stay calm. And celebrate the small wins. I love seeing these uh, videos from these hospitals where patients are wheeled out of the hospital that just survived a two-week stay on a ventilator in an ICU, and they're going home. And the nurses are lining the hallways, cheering them. That's and amazing. we don't see enough of that. There are people that are surviving, and these people, you know, the, the healthcare workers are putting their, not just healthcare workers, but a lot of first responders, police, firefighters, EMT, a lot of people are people in grocery stores, look at what they're doing. Yeah. And these are people that have children at home that they're exposing their families to, and they don't probably have very good childcare options. There are so many people who are putting their lives on, on at risk. And, and there are some good things that are happening. And have you seen um, John Krasinski's some good news segment? SGN, that's what he calls it. Have you seen it, Scott? Not yet. Tell me about it. it. Is, I'll go look it up right it after is this. Awesome. So he does like a 15 minute segment and it's, it's called SGN, Some okay. Good News. And that's all it's about. The first one was the cast of Hamilton singing to this girl who was this young nine year old who was supposed to go see Hamilton for her birthday. Okay. Last week it was, uh, it was something else that was just so <laughs> uplifting and enlightening. And, you know, it's as awful as this is. It is causing people to reconnect and be kinder and yeah. more forgiving of each other. Too bad we can't be like this all the time. Right, and pun intended, in a very infectious way, right? And yeah. I'm not trying to belittle the infection, but like, you know, infection can be a good thing, right? That's if right. We, if, we, if we're spreading something, something powerful that, that brings us together, interesting. What are you thinking there, Glenn? I could see an idea. Well, no, it just that I think Terry's brought something up that you've been addressing, Scott, is... But she said, I wish it can stay that way. And my, my volley to you, Scott, is why can't it? Well, my answer is a simple one. It can. Because every single institution that we might talk about that might be supposedly blocking our way is something that we created. We are humans. We created every institution that is limiting us to this day. We've also created every institution and bit of technology that's allowing us to continue to stay together and connect despite the fact that we have to be in our condos and our homes. So we've, we've created both the problems and the solutions. And that in lies the answer. And that we need to go back to that original statement, I would say, and that is to do what Terry does when she's in the middle of a major, major crisis like she was with, during Katrina. And that was embrace the disorientation. This is how it is. Don't, don't start worrying about, oh, how do we get back? Or, or what is different? Or what do we do? Don't worry about that, right? I like your phrase, Terry. We're going to park that right now, right? I'm going to use that and I'll credit you always. But, but the ability to park it for right now 
and uh, at least the norm, the standard, and to literally allow yourself to innovate and be a human. Humans are adaptive innovators. That's everything that we've done. That's why the species has continued. That's why we are around to this day. And it started well before we came up with the first stone tool. But I don't know, man, that trajectory of human innovation that's happened since the stone tool has been exponentially growing. And we, people that have been alive over the course of the 20th to the 21st century, are, are maybe blessed and also cursed to be able to see just what exponential factor really means with technological growth. So I'll stop that rant and just say, um, I'm feeling a lot more empowered about the future in talking to a leader like Terry, <laughs> because it's reminding me that we got this. We made the problem, we can fix the problem. And as long as we remember that humans are actors, right? That we can, we can do things, we can change things, and everything around us is stuff that we've made in attempt to make something better, we screw up. But right now, it seems like it's a good moment where things, we kind of screwed up to the point where it's so broken that we can't put it back together the way it was. Well, maybe we don't want to. We don't, I don't want to, I'm with you. <laughs> Right. But I'm going to be nice and I'm going to say maybe we don't because maybe there's some people and I promise there are people that are going back. This goes back to disorientation. I promise I'll try to stop after this. But um, disorientation, there's there's going to be three ways that people and again, this is meta. So people can bicker about whether they're in between these. There's three ways that people react to disorientation because disorientation is even when we're born as a young one, very discomforting. Right. Like, oh, I don't know what to do. Group one fights it. Group two runs from it. And group three just goes, hmm, let's check this out for a little while. And group three is the one that carries group one and two all along human history. Right now, group one, the fighters, they're the ones that are pushing so hard to get back to the normal. I refuse to accept coronavirus. We will return to normal. None of this is going to to knock us down. I refuse to be knocked down by this. We're going to fight it to the end. And we're going to use metaphors like the war on COVID. Most cultures don't really talk about healthcare as a war, right? They talk about it as <laughs> Anyway, that's a whole other thing. So let's go to the fleeing people, the people that run away. They see the same crisis. The disorientation emerges. Now what do I do? Well, instead of fighting it because they're so afraid, they just run to a corner and just ignore it and they do whatever they want to do. These are the people that are basically trying to live the normal life they had before, even knowing that that's not there anymore. Hmm. But then there's the flowers. And you're a flower. (laughs) Terry's a flower. (laughs) And that's somebody that doesn't feel the urge to do what your neurology has been shaped to do over millions of years, and that is to fight or fight, fight, fly away from it or fight it. You're saying, before I fight it, before I flee from it, let's just check this out for a minute. Let's keep where we are. What was our mission again? Oh, yeah, we're helping people. So what can we do to help people? Because the old system isn't working. So what can we do? And so by flowing, by going with the situation and accepting it, breathing and moving forward, it just, to me, seems so much more encouraging in terms of, of, of a leadership framework um, that I want to follow you, Terry. <laughs> well, I may take you right in the fire, but it'll be fun and it'll be interesting. <laughs> so we can come it'll, it'll, fire. Be fast. it'll be fast. All so, right. I like it. So why, why don't leaders flow enough, Terry? Because let's face it, they don't. 
or you might think otherwise. I haven't seen enough executives that know how to flow because flowing requires vulnerability and a level of authenticity that uh, that is unheard of. But I just want to say this is a good question for Terry because Terry is self-admitted. Hurry this up! I need this to happen now, right? But oddly enough, ironically enough, she's also a flower. So how does that work, Terry? Well, oh, we got you. Yes, you have. You have. Um, Trust your gut. Those, those are hard, those are hard questions to answer. I don't know. It's just it's my DNA. So y'all, I mean, y'all are just listening to me talk and and deducing these things, and and I can't disagree with them. So I. As you're psychoanalyzing me, I'm thinking, yeah, that's me. That's me. Uh, and maybe they're a little inconsistent. Maybe they're a little schizophrenic. But to me, it's, it's taking a situation and not letting the situation take, take you over. And seizing the moment, trying to get other people united around, we can do this. And then trying to, I don't want to say lead them but work with them so that they feel like they can do it. And that's where, to me, the empowerment comes in and the confidence building. So the way I'm, I would approach what, we're, what this crisis is right now, if I were still in that type of leadership position, would be really no different than we had a thousand-year flood in Baton Rouge in 2016. We had just moved our flagship hospital to a new campus, and it had a lake around it. And we thought the first floor was going to be flooded. Oh. And, it, and it was just creeping up, creeping up. And the Corps of Engineers didn't know if it was going to happen or not. And, you know, it, it's, it, who would have ever, it's a, they, the chance of that happening is once in a thousand years. That's why they called it that. Mm. And those kinds of rain events just don't occur like that. That's why I say there's, there's, you have to be able to adapt and be comfortable with change. and. I think for leaders who aren't real comfortable with change, they, they're not risk tolerant, mm -hmm. then they are going to struggle a lot more. Or if they feel like they have to have perfect information, you, you cannot have perfect information in most things if you're a risk taker, and certainly not in something that's as unprecedented as this coronavirus that pandemic, or a Katrina, or a thousand-year flood, or wildfires or whatever it may be over yeah. all, other parts of the country. So, uh, you know, maybe the flowing comes after you're the disruptor mm. and, and rather than before that, or maybe it's not, uh, you know, parallel to it. Yeah. Uh, Terry is, is we try to give people um, hope and for what's going to come out on the other side of this, which I don't think will be, um, I don't know if we'll ever know exactly what that means for a while, what, uh, getting on the other side, but let's say we're there. I mean, you came out of the other side of, of Katrina. Um, what were, I mean, if, what did you share? I, I'm sure you, this was very personal for you and your executive leadership team, but, what were, did you do a debrief of learnings? I mean, what did you do to kind of bring people back to the moment that you were in? And did you have a chance to debrief, share learnings, um, reward though, you know, reward everyone for staying true to the mission and the values? I mean, what, what did, how did you make people feel about their contribution? 
That's my point. Well, we did a lot of that. And women's was not really good at celebrating success. Hmm. We would just be ready to go on to the next problem that we wanted to fix. Um, and it was something that we had to be very conscious about. But on this particular situation, because it was so, so broad-based, included our entire medical staff, our board, our, our employees, our community really was so supportive of volunteers and, and others like that. Uh, we just made, we were very deliberate about celebrating what we had done because it had never been done before and likely would not be a situation that would ever occur again to that magnitude. So we, we uh, documented everything that we did. Uh, several of us went on the road to share our experiences so that we could teach others about managing in a, in a crisis of that magnitude. And um, I'm still doing those presentations. Um, and each time I see them, it brings tears to my eyes because I think of the sacrifices as well as just the many, many thoughtful things that our staff did. We set up shelters for uh, families along with churches because the local Red Cross shelter would not allow pregnant women or families with newborns in the shelters. Right. And so we, we had to figure out, along with eight or 10 other churches in the area, they would use their Sunday school classrooms and their schools to take care of these families, give them a home, because they didn't have any place to live. Their houses were flooded or, or destroyed. Uh -huh. So, uh, so we, we spent a lot of time debriefing, and then the state did too. And, and as a result of our actions at the state asking to take over the responsibility for overseeing the evacuation care of those newborns, we are now part of the official state response plan. And so as a result of that, the state still has regular tabletop exercises and has meetings and women's is at the table. And so did not let that disaster get wasted either. I think the state of Louisiana and particularly our organization and others were really serious about making sure that we could be better prepared next time. And then we shared what we learned with anyone who was interested in hearing about it. There was, you know, there was nothing that we tried that we held sacred or that we yeah. thought needed to be confidential. I, I can say that for our organization. So, so Terry, um, do you think that moving forward, this will force upon us transformation or reinvention? Well, I know what your definition of transformation is. I'm not sure <laughs> what the definition of reinvention is. Based on my definitions, I think it's both. I hmm. think that there's going to be a lot of, well, there's things that have already been reinvented. People have figured out how to put two people on a ventilator. Hmm. Now, telehealth visits are accepted, whereas a month ago, nobody wanted to pay for it. Right. And a lot of patients didn't want to use it. And now, Everybody wants that, and the federal government and, and commercial payers decided they're going to pay for it. It's a safer way to provide care. So, to, and you know, is that transformation or is that reinvention? I don't know what, that it matters how you label it. What I do know, it's all of a sudden it has opened up access to care to people who need it. And if it's more convenient and it's more available to them, then that's a good thing. And then some of the other 
regulations and things that I've mentioned around credentialing and licensing and yeah. a whole host of things in the medical side. I, I just see a lot of good coming out of this. I really do. Yeah. No, and Terry, uh, thanks for, for being kind in your, in your, uh, <laughs> in your comment uh, about uh, transformation versus reinvention. Uh, th this seems to, these two words again have been uh, coming up repeatedly uh, with those that we've uh, been, been speaking with. And uh, essentially this notion of reinvention is uh, coming from a place of really starting over again. Um, and, and I know that seems a bit drastic, but watch where, where I'm going to take this. Again, you could agree or disagree. But I mean, beyond healthcare, there are numerous industries that will go away. Big businesses go away instantly. Um, and, and there are those that are just hanging on. And there are those that one might consider essential. Um, regardless of which bucket you fit into, um, it seems to me that there will be a certain level of reinvention. What does this mean? When this all kind of plateaus and uh, we can step back a little bit and, and really analyze it, um, do you, how do you feel about leaders that have been leading these? Uh, these various industries, some that are not essential versus those that, that maybe are, that maybe just aren't quite prepared to fight or flow uh, because they've decided to fly away uh, uh, and say, look, I'm not suited for another round of massive, whatever you want to call it, to get us back uh, where we want to be, or at least get us to a point where we can survive. I mean, so my, 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 my question is, if there are leaders that are better suited for transformation and or reinvention like you are, there are many that are not. What role do you think that the, a board will have to play in this reinvention transformation process? Because I've got to believe, and you're very much uh, involved in and in, in have become uh, very active in, in corporate governance as, as a board member of, of many boards, how do you think their role is going to elevate? And, are, and again, you don't have to answer this, but my, my thought is that are, are those boards prepared to advise or provide perspective about how to transform to whatever the new normal is going to be? I know that's a mouthful, but you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. I think people think that, oh, okay, leadership will come back and figure out a plan. And yeah, I get that in, in, in the traditional way, yes, but I think this is something completely different. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, there's, there's a, a saying uh, in corporate governance, it's nose in, fingers out. So <laughs> the, the responsibility, the role of the board is to kind of poke holes in the plan. But the strategic plan needs to be developed by the executive team. Mm. And I think it's going to come back to culture again. Boards are really strong boards, have people of diverse backgrounds, diverse skill sets, diverse occupations, diverse experiences. And if those individuals are around the board, then they can be wonderful 
support and help and advisors to the CEO and the executive team about the direction the organization needs to go. And fortunately, the boards I serve on have strong CEOs, but they're also team players, as I've mentioned earlier. And so as a result, as a result of that, then, um, you know, I think those boards are going to be just fine. You're right. There are going to be some, some economic sectors, sectors that are going to thrive. Look at what Amazon's doing in the grocery stores and some of those yeah. businesses, uh, transportation. And then there, I wonder what's going to happen to malls. They were already struggling. And yeah. are they even going to be able to come back? Right. Um, I, I think as the first part of your question was around CEOs and those who just say, I just can't do this anymore. There's going to be some of those. And that's okay. And it may not be that they just don't want to go through this again. Maybe they're just burned out. Exactly. And, and probably think, were to begin with. That's, that's what I'm exactly where I'm going with this. And a, a CEO who can say, I am no longer going to be able to effectively lead this organization. I admire them. That is a really, really hard thing for a CEO to admit to. Hmm. But if they're sincere, if they're authentic, and if they really care about their organization, then their board won't need to do that. They will give their boards time to figure out their successor, but they won't put their boards in a position where the board has to act in a manner that may not be in the best interest of the stakeholders, be that the employees, the customers, the shareholders, whomever it may be. That, that is not a good place to put a board. Now, as far as boards being prepared, well, no, none of us are really prepared for anything like this. But, uh, but I know that boards are very resilient as well. And there are people typically on those boards or they're very successful people, either in business or whatever their chosen field is. And I think that successful people are risk tolerant, that they're willing to take risks. So, so as a result, you would think that organizations that have strong boards are going to be in a much better position than those who don't. What, what do you think are, uh, and again, uh, I know it's, it's different by industry, but there seems to be a consensus that as we move forward, that digital transformation is going to be uh, more of a priority than ever. And it was already a priority and has been in healthcare. But as you think of board compositions, do you see those changing as the needs change? I've, I've got to believe that. I mean, even if you look at the role of, uh, of chief HR officer, I mean, I've got to believe that human capital with whether regardless of what industry it is, is going to change. I mean, this is impacting people and, and there's going to be different types of skills that we need different types of experiences and backgrounds. I mean, I've got to believe that all of this change is going to impact compositions of boards and what uh, organizations really need from them. Well, you must be reading corporate governance magazines because those are the hot topics they've been talking about for probably two or three years now. We don't huh? need to just have CEOs or retired CEOs or CFOs sitting around the table. We need to have people that have human resource backgrounds, that have IT backgrounds, that have that that know um, about retail and online, and that's and cybersecurity is a huge one. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of talk about sustainability, environmental, and other types of responsibilities that corporations have now. So those are 
those are the skill sets that most boards are looking for whenever they are looking to refresh or replace a board member. Wow. Yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I, maybe we're just, um, I'm, some of these questions are, it's too soon, but I've just got to believe that those things are inevitable. Um, Terry, if, if you can give us some uh, parting comments, uh, what would they be? <laughs> well, first of all, I've really enjoyed talking with you guys. This has been, or y'all, I should say. Uh, it's it's, been, it's very, been very enjoyable. I hope I was able to, to share a perspective that you can build on and um, wish both of you much success. And I look forward to the next time that I see you both in person because I, I always learn so much when I'm around both of you. Glenn opens my eyes to things always that I never really thought about it that way. And I tell him that every time we talk. So we'll schedule a 15 minute call and it always ends up being an hour and 15 minutes, but I don't mind that. It's mostly because of me. Um, but as far as just in general, I guess I'm, I'm more optimistic than ever about the future of this country. This is a horrible thing that we're going through right now. I never expected that I would see something like this in my lifetime, but I think we're going to come out on the other end. If it's been like my other crisis management experiences, you come out stronger than you were before. And hopefully we will have an opportunity to rally around a new sense of values, a new sense of urgency, and a prior prioritization of what's really important in this country that maybe we couldn't have gotten there had it not been for something this awful. And what are those things that are most important, Terry? It is family. It's relationships. It is um, health, because the health care systems have been underfunded for many years. Uh, I think getting rid of red tape and bureaucracy and trying to really identify in very clear and quantitative terms what we're trying to achieve and then all agree that we're working on towards a common goal rather than splintering off into disparate camps, that's just not effective. That's not good for anybody. And so to me, those are, those are the priorities. Is a lot of people have said, you know, I, I never thought I'd be spending this much time at home. And some of us are getting cabin fever and, you know, it's a lot of togetherness. But, <laughs> but in many ways, it's, it's been a blessing that people have had to stop their, the craziness in their lives being so hectic and really remember what's important. It's forced people, I think, to really decide what is most important to them, whereas we wouldn't have had the time or the ability to do that because urgent always gets in the way of important, unfortunately. And this time has given a lot of people the opportunity to really figure out what's important since parts of our lives are no longer urgent. You know, Terry, you've, uh, I thought I was gonna end now, but I have to, <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind, I, I, are you okay on time? Because I, there's something you said that really dawned on me. Is that, um, and you brought it up earlier, but I, I to add to the to the the things that are important, I think people need to take the time to understand what their priorities really are. Yeah, and you know we talk about that, and we just. We, we almost assume that people know what priorities mean. And 
I guess I'm, I'm bringing it up because I think the leaders that take us into tomorrow are going to be those who are going to have to define a whole different set of priorities and uh, priorities that are centered on the individual uh, priorities that are focused on uh, contribution uh, priorities that, as you mentioned earlier, uh, allow for experimentation without judgment uh, and priorities that bring us back to what we're all experiencing now, this uh, being human. And it's interesting how this word is being used, I feel, more than ever before. And, and because that's what we're experiencing. I mean, Terry, the last time I talked to you, you said, oh, let me get my pug on the phone. And, and, and you're, it's Jake, right? And then you showed me, go ahead and get on FaceTime. And Terry looked at me and I just woken <laughs> up. <laughs> and, I thought, and, and she noticed that I was actually a little sensitive about it. And by the way, ever since you called me out on it, I've been good. <laughs> but, the, but the whole point is, I think that that's what people want, the human side of it. And then I think the thing that you'd mentioned just now is, and we had this discussion before, Scott, is this sense of interconnectedness and interdependence. Yeah. I mean, th this, is, we got. Th this, right. this is what is saving us right now, is that we recognize we all have a role to play. And oftentimes people can't see it, but look, my my daughter's going to be five year five years old next week, and guess what? We've had over sixty people that have agreed to come to her party. Well, what um, is the, what, but what is the party? The party is sixty families are going to come in their car with the kid or kids in the car and they're going to sing happy birthday to her. And we're going to give them an opportunity to write something in our big driveway. And we're going to give them a little something with all the social distancing being respected, but we're going to celebrate her birthday. And that will be the birthday that she will remember more than any in her entire life. I Good promise. Point. And you too. But, but, but that's the whole, first of all, Terry, I love how you, you came with the, with the punchline. That is exactly right. But when we don't become inventive to celebrate humanity, then what are we left with? Well, you're being adaptive here, you know, so you've got a set of circumstances <laughs> and you've got some limitations, but as Scott said, I mean, we have humans have brains and we it's a disorientation that you are trying to make some sense out of and give her an experience that she will always remember. And so, Scott, can yeah. you God, did I say that right? Wait, wait. Oh, you said it perfect. <laughs> my, my dear sister, you said it so perfect. So I, answered, so I get an A on that test question. Terry, hold on a second. <laughs> I'd love to take it. To, to the next step that you did during Katrina with physicians that are coming from out of state. Scott, can you please officially certify Terry that she has officially become an anthropologist in waiting? 
Oh, I can't even do that because she was born one. Her very style, her very ethos is nothing but anthropological. She leads with humanity and everything else follows, including humans. And I just want to say there's one, my closing part uh, or comment here would just be uh, kind of inclusive of what both of you had just been talking about uh, prior, just prior to the birthday. And that is uh, talking about leadership and uh, advice for folks that are there now. And I think uh, one thing that you had mentioned, Glenn, was that with, uh, with leaders that are facing these issues right now today, uh, you're essentially talking about what is the future leader gonna look like after this experience. And one of the things that you mentioned is you said that um, they're going to help, uh, help us give, give us our priorities. Right. They're going to help realign our priorities. And what I would like to offer is the fact that if we have a leadership style like our dear friend Terry, our future leaders aren't going to be telling us our priorities. They're going to aligning us. They're going to align us together and create a collective consciousness of very different minded and different experienced people. And that collective consciousness is what is going to define the priorities. And that's literally going to be the differentiating factor between an era of standardization and an era of personalization. It's the collective consciousness as the leader. So as we've been saying all day, we're not just leveling the virus, right? We're leveling leadership. Well, and you get- Oh, there, you already do it, man. <laughs> you, get, you get an A too, because I-, I Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> A's for everybody. That was incredible. What a great close, Scott. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.